Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. New series, four weeks long, looking at what it means to be sent to the city of Dublin. We're going to sort of relook at our vision of uh, being a, a church that wants to make a positive difference to Dublin. That's our vision, that we'd make a positive difference to Dublin spiritually, culturally, and socially. Spiritually, that people would come to know God. Uh, culturally, that we'd make a difference and bring the values of the kingdom into Dublin to make it a better city. And uh, socially, to love the poor and the oppressed. So we're going to look at the book of Jonah. He was sent to the great city of Nineveh, was asked to go, uh, so that God might make a, he might make a difference there. And God is calling us to this great city of Dublin. Dublin, so we're going to think about that. Now, Jonah is often seen as this nice story for children. It's about a man who got swallowed by a big fish. And while that's true, it feels like the book of Jonah has been tamed for many years. Because it's not a book uh, about a nice man called Jonah who got swallowed by a big fish. It's actually about a stubborn, proud, racist man called Jonah who did everything he could to resist God's call on his life. And it's actually a book about how God pursues this proud man to change his heart. The funny thing is, the book ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know if Jonah's heart is changed by the end of the book. Like many of the parables of Jesus, it's left on a cliffhanger because the whole point is that we put ourselves into the story ourselves and ask the question, will I allow God to change my heart? I don't know if God changed Jonah's heart. We're never told. The final verdict is out there, as in he's not out there. But will I allow him to change my heart. So the idea of today's talk, the big idea is before we can be sent to the city, we have to know where we're running from God. When God comes to Jonah midway through the 8th century BC, Jonah's heart and God's heart are at odds. Jonah's heart is very ugly, or God's heart is very compassionate. Instead of joining God's mission, he runs from God. Why? Because in his heart, he was already running from God. And when God said, go to Nineveh, it revealed what was already in his heart. And so we need to think about what might God be calling us to that we're resisting, and that's revealing something in our hearts where we are already running from God. So I'm going to retell the story through the three main characters, God, Jonah, and the pagan sailors, and think about what we can learn about being sent to the city and about allowing God to change our hearts instead of running from him. Let's start with Jonah. What can we learn about Jonah? Well, we don't know much about Jonah. Um, his name means dove, but he's anything but a sign of hope that the dove in, Jonah, in Noah's Ark represents. Uh, he lived in the 8th century BC, and we have one reference to him outside of the book of Jonah. It's actually from 2 Kings. It's on the back of your hand out there, not 1 Kings. 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25. What do we know about Jonah? And again, your handout, I misprinted it, so the first bit's missing, but it's pretty straightforward. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, it's going to be Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. Excuse me, I've lost my place. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that's his great father, which he caused Israel to commit. He was the one, this is Jeroboam II, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea, their geographical references. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath, Hefer. So let me back up a bit and put it all in context of the history of Israel and the Bible story so far. 
This is how the story goes. Around 2000 BC, God calls a man called Abraham and says to him, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And through you and your descendants and the nation that's going to come from you, Israel, you guys are going to be and bring the blessing of God to all the other nations on earth. Abraham's descendants were Isaac and Jacob, and they received the same promise reiterated in the book of Genesis. Jacob's name was changed to Israel later on, and he had 12 sons. One of the sons was called Joseph, and Joseph lacked tact, and so his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. But through a remarkable series of events, he becomes second in command in the greatest empire of the time, Egypt. Many years later, because of a famine in Canaan, where the 12 other sons, 11 other sons were, they had to go to Egypt. And uh, a new pharaoh ended up coming to rule. He didn't know Joseph and all the great stuff Joseph had done. And he felt threatened by the Israelites who so started to oppress them. And so we have 430 years of slavery until God, uh, the, Israel, the Israelites being enslaved by the Egyptians. Around 1400 BC, God raises up Moses to deliver them. And God brings his people out of Egypt. He takes them to a dramatic Red Sea moment. He takes them to Sinai where he forms a covenant with them. He gives them the law. He gives them his presence in the form of the tabernacle. And again, he calls them, I want you as a nation. Now I'm reforming you or strengthening you to be a light to the nations. He calls them a kingdom of priests to represent God to the other nations. They wandered around for 40 years because they disobeyed God. But the Israelites eventually take possession of the land through Joshua around 1350 B.C. After some pretty terrible years, described in the, book, the period in the book of Judges, Israel asks for a king around 1100 BC. And God gives them three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Each king reigns for 40 years, so there's 120 years of the united kingdom of Israel. You can read that in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. However, after Solomon, things go wrong again, as they normally do in Israel's history, and the kingdom divides in 922 BC, and we end up with two kingdoms. We have the ten northern tribes under a man called Jeroboam I. That, 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 those ten tribes are called Israel. Their capital was Samaria. And then we have two southern tribes under a man called Rehoboam, Solomon's son, called Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. And you can read about the tragic way these kingdoms and the various kings, on the whole, there was a few exceptions, drifted from God. And you can read about the prophetic ministries of Elisha and Elijah and other prophets who God sent to speak to his people. Because apart from a few good moments and a few good kings, most of them did drift from God. They didn't obey God's word. They didn't love the poor. They mingled with the nations. They worshipped foreign gods. And they failed drastically in God's original promise to Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and then to Moses to be a light to the nations. Instead of being a light to the nations, they mingled with the nations and compromised. So much so that the northern kingdom, under judgment from God, you can read this in 2 Kings 17, was an exile to Assyria. The capital of Assyria is Nineveh. The southern kingdom, the two tribes under Rehoboam originally, limped on for a bit longer and was exiled in 586, 587 BC. You can read that in 2 Kings 24 by uh, the Babylonians. So Egypt was the megapower, then Assyria was the megapower, and then Babylon was the megapower. And God's people at various points uh, found themselves under them. So let's come back to 2 Kings 14, which tells us of Jeroboam II, who was king of the 10 northern tribes, Israel, about 40, 50 years before they were exiled. 
And during the time of Jeroboam II, this king, they did experience some political resurgence, and they reclaimed some land back from their enemies, the Arameans, which they'd lost during the time of the father, Jehosh, which you have on your hand out there. Why did they manage to reclaim it? Why was the land reclaimed, remember? He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with a prophet called Jonah. So look, what do we learn about Jonah? Who is he? Well, he was part of the northern kingdom called Israel. He was the son of Amittai from Gath-Hefer, which is in Galilee, five kilometers from Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. But more importantly, what does it tell us? It tells us he's a prophet of God, like Elijah and Elisha. He was a man who God had spoken to and used to bring a message to the people. He was a religious man. His doctrine was correct. He believed the right things. Secondly, he's called a servant of God, which is a title given a number of times in the Old Testament to someone or, or, or even the nation of Israel who have a specific task. Isaiah 53, here is my servant, and he becomes a suffering servant. We now know that to be Jesus. A servant is a very special title for a specific role that God gives. And thirdly, he has experienced firsthand God using him. And he, he spoke God's word and stuff happened They restored the land, and Israel once again regained some strength. God used him personally to do good. In other words, Jonah's supposed to be a good guy, God's servant, God's prophet, God's instrument. He's got the right doctrine. He believes the right stuff. And yet when God says, go to the great city of Nineveh to preach my message that might repent, he runs. Why? Well, now you know the history. He's got to go to Assyria, to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, to the great mega power of the time, the oppressor of all the other nations at the time, the dominant force in the world, who would soon plunder the ten tribes and take them into exile. In other words, God is saying, go and preach to your worst enemy. And surprise, surprise, Jonah doesn't go. And here's a map. You can see here, uh, in there, you see Assyria with Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction to Tarshish. He goes down to Joppa. You see that just above Judah? And he catches a boat there. You can see Judah and Israel, the southern and the northern tribes. You can see Lebo or just Hamath there. And then you can see the, uh, the Dead Sea, the places that are mentioned in that time. It's not, but here's the thing. It's not that God, Jonah doesn't want to go because he's scared. Well, he may have been, but we're not told that. Like, oh my life, I've got to go to the Assyrians, they're the real powerful ones. No, it's not that of fear that he doesn't want to go, it's out of hatred. It's out of racism that he doesn't want to go. We see at the end of the book, chapter 4, we kind of understand the, what, the psychology of Jonah, what's going on in his heart, and his head. He does go to Nineveh in chapter 3, they do repent, and then he has an argument with God, and this is what he said. He prayed to the Lord, isn't that what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better to die than to live. Jonah's worst nightmare came true through his preaching. His worst enemy repented, and God had compassion on them. And Jonah didn't want God to have compassion on his enemy. God, he says there, I wanted you to send calamity, fire, brimstone, come down, get those Ninevites. But God forgives them. And Jonah says, now that you've forgiven my enemy, I prefer to die than to live. Jonah might be a prophet and a servant of God. He might have experienced God firsthand in the past and been used. He might have all the correct doctrine. But at this time, Jonah's a racist. He's a bigot. And he cannot stand the fact that God loves his enemy. So do you see? 
the book of Jonah deals with a problem. It's ancient and it's modern. How do you love those that aren't in your tribe? Modern society, we're so polarized. You know, are you conservative or liberal? Did you vote this way or that way? Are you part of my crew? Do you believe what I believe? Would you believe the opposite? And we want to distance ourselves. We don't want to get close to the people that aren't in our tribe. And God says, go and get real close to the people that are in the worst tribe in your mind. Isn't that interesting? It's a modern problem. What we do, we do exactly what Jonah did. We stay at a distance and we criticize through social media rather than going and chatting and loving someone who might very much disagree with our opinion on things. When God says to Jonah, go and preach to the people of Nineveh, he says, go and get close. Go and engage with them. Why? Why would God do this? Two reasons. Firstly, because God is a God of compassion. And he loves all people, no matter what you believe, no matter what your current state of living, uh, no matter how broken, messed up, bad, whatever. He loves everyone. He has compassion on everyone, not just his covenant people. It says in 2 Peter 3, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants everyone to repent. And he loves the people that persecute the covenant people. Secondly, so God has compassion on all people. That's why. And that's what Israel was supposed to do, reach the nations. Secondly, because God wants to deal with Jonah's heart. God's after his heart. And so it will be with us. God wants us to reach out to those that we find hard to love, that we disagree with, that we think are wrong, that we might have been hurt by. God says, go and love those people. The annoying ones, the ones that you go, I can't believe you think that. How do you think? I can't believe, that's ridiculous you think that. God says, yeah, go and love them. Go and get to know them. Go and spend time with them. Go and tell them about who I am. And as he sends us, we find out, there's all sorts of ugly things about my heart. I don't want to go there. I have such nasty thoughts about those people. And God says, yeah, because I'm after your heart, and I want to change you too. So we learn about Jonah, that he's a prophet, that he's a servant, that he's had firsthand experience of God, but right now he's very proud, and he's a racist, and God wants to change the ugliness in his heart. What do we learn about God then? We learn about God a number of things. Firstly, as I said, he's got a very, very, very compassionate heart that loves all people, no matter your background, your ethnic group, your color, your language, your upbringing, your past, your present, your future, what you believe about any political topic. He says, I love you all equally. And I love my covenant people, and I love those that aren't part of my covenant people. Secondly, he's a God who pursues selfish, proud people like Jonah. Or to use the language of the New Testament, God loves Pharisees. In the New Testament, you see that two types of people are drawn around Jesus, uh, the Pharisees and the sinners. The sinners, who are they? Well, they're the prostitutes, the tax collector, the women with shady backgrounds, and all the rest. And they seem to love Jesus. Why? Because in Jesus, they actually discover, maybe for the first time ever, God does have a heart of compassion for all people. And they're like, wow. And then there's the Pharisees. They are the morally clean, the religiously pious, they have the right doctrine, and guess what? They can't stand Jesus. Why? For the same reason Jonah can't. He's hanging around with the wrong people. Why does Jesus associate, embrace, honor the, the dirty sinners? Like Jonah, the Pharisees are revealed to have very ugly hearts. But guess what? Jesus isn't a Pharisee about Pharisees. Jesus isn't a Jonah to Jonas. He loves all people even the really proud ones and the really racist ones and the ones our society says, no one, he says, no, I even love them. And he pursues Jonah to change his heart. 
Thirdly, we learn God is in control. Jonah 1 is a great passage about the sovereignty of God over all things. He's in control over nature. Do you see that? He sends a wind in verse 4, and then he calms the storm in verse 15. He sends a great fish in verse 17, uh, and then he vomits the f- Jonah out of the fish in the next chapter, 2 verse 10. In chapter 4, he's going to cause a vine to grow up in verse 7, and he's going to cause it to die in verse 8. God is in control over nature. But God is also in control over salvation. Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Because he wanted Israel and he wanted Jonah, the servant of Israel, to go and bring in, Jonah's language, you know, the dirty pagans. Say, uh, the dirty pagans. Jonah runs from far or far away from him, and what happens? God reaches the dirty pagans, if I can use that language. I use it, you know, with inverted commas. So God wanted to reach the Gentiles through Jonah, and even when Jonah ran away from the Lord, what happened? God reached the Gentiles through Jonah. He's in control. You cannot thwart God's salvation purposes. When Jonah finally goes to Nineveh in chapter 3, it's it's an eight-word sermon that we get that causes 120,000 people to repent. And Jonah says in chapter 2.10, salvation is from the Lord, and it is. This is God's work. And by the way, if you want to be sent to the great city of Dublin to bring its message, God's message to the people that they might repent, you have to know that salvation is from the Lord. Otherwise, you'll push it, you'll panic, you'll worry, you'll force things, you'll use the wrong tactics. This is God's work, not ours. He's the only one that can change hearts. We are joining him, and he's going to do the work. It's not about us. We get to just join in. He invites us. You have to know this truth if you want to be sent to a city like Dublin where most people don't want to know God. God is in charge of salvation. He changes hearts, but we're to be his messengers that join in. Third, fourthly, you cannot escape from his presence. Leanne read it at the beginning of the, of, the, um, of, the ser- of the service. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, no matter how bitter, twisted, rebellious, sinful you get, you can never outrun God. You can never escape him. No matter how, what goes on in your heart, no matter how, how ugly it becomes, he's still pursuing you. And he's, he, he can never escape his presence. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you need that? I need that. I have moments when I drift. Isn't it brilliant that I can never escape God's presence and he's coming after me? So what do we learn about the Gentile sailors? They're the third character in the story. Well, we learn one big truth. Huge important truth. They are more righteous than Jonah. Verses 12 to 13, they do all they can to spare Jonah's life when he tells them to throw them into the sea. Verse 14, they cry out to God for mercy, asking him not to hold them accountable for throwing him overboard. Verse 16, after they have thrown him overboard and the sea becomes calm, what does it say? Verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. While Jonah was doing everything to be rebellious, these people, these pagan sailors, these Gentile sailors act in a more righteous way and respond to God with much more reverence than Jonah did. What does this teach us? It teaches us even if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to go and reach the dirty world out there, and you want to be sent to it, the dirty world out there may well be and will be more righteous than you so much of the time. And you can learn from them. And so we should. It comes from two doctrines. The image of God in every human 
That's the idea that it's not just Christians who are imprinted with God's image, it's everyone. And so those who do not profess faith will very often be full of things more than us, like kindness and love and morality and so on and so forth, because God's image is in them as well as you. And secondly, another doctrine, common grace. Common grace is the idea that God shines his sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. He provides and cares for all people, not just his covenant people. Saving grace, which is different from common grace, is the grace gives people so we can repent and come into a personal relationship with Christ. Saving grace helps you understand that despite your sin, God wants to embrace you and grant you salvation, and you accept that. That's saving grace. And by the way, if we believe that we're sinners saved by grace, it is not surprising that we'd find people in the world who are more righteous than us in their behavior. Why? Because we're saying we're sinners. And we may have more deeply entrenched sin that we know we've been rescued from than someone else. So it's actually the doctrine of saving grace that also helps me understand why I find people that may act and have attitudes that are better than mine. Because I'm a sinner saved by grace, not by works. But common grace is the grace God gives to all people. The air we breathe, the bodies we have, the skills we love to hone, the passions we discover in our hearts. These are God's gift to all people. Do you remember the two most, most famous stories? I think they're the most famous stories Jesus ever told. Do you remember them? The Good Samaritan. It's the dirty Samaritan, the impure half-breed, who helped the man left on the side of the road by the robbers who had take, you know, left him for dead. And the priest and the Levite, the morally and religiously pure and doctrinally correct, who passed by. It's the same with the sailors. More righteous than God's prophet. Do you remember the story of the prodigal sons? Remember that one? There's two brothers, two sons. The younger brother is the dirty sinner in the story. And like the, people of Nineveh, like the people of Nineveh, where Jonah doesn't want to go, he's wasting his money on parties and orgies in the streets and wild living and, and all that. And then uh, the younger brother ends up coming home to the father after making a mess of his life. And when he comes home, what does he find in the father's heart? Jonah wants a compassionate heart who embraces him. Then you have the elder brother, the Pharisee, like Jonah, And why is he so mad in the story? Because the younger brother who doesn't deserve it gets all this compassion and he gets a party and he gets a welcome. And what do we find? He becomes angry and he speaks in judgment on both the father, God, and the younger brother. And he doesn't come into the feast. That's Jonah. And Jonah resents God's compassion that he might show to the Ninevites. Like the elder brother resented the compassion the father showed to the younger brother. So in other words, God will use people that you completely disagree with, you find really hard, they may have hurt you, you kind of under, he'll go, I'm going to use this person to teach you about grace. And you're like, really? He's like, yeah. And they're often going to be more righteous than you. In your correctness, they're going to be more uh, righteous in their actions. People are unlike you, people that you maybe naturally despise, people that annoy you, people that hurt you, people that you see yourself better than. You don't say that out loud, but you do. We all do. We're humans. We're sinful. People that you think, well, they're, they're an enemy of God, aren't they? Because I don't like them. And God says, no, I've got compassion on them. So let me finish by applying all this. And what does it mean then to be sent to the city of Dublin? To be God-sent people. Firstly, to be a sent people, to be a church in this city, does not mean in any way we are sorted. Let's have some humility about that. In fact, it might be that we're the most messed up and we've experienced grace. And like Jonah was, he was the most messed up. And the city can teach us. We don't go, oh, we're the ones that've got this great message. We do have a great message. 
but we also have stuff we can learn back. Since moving to Dublin and getting a job in the tech world, I've learned about my heart more than I did when I was a pastor. I've learned the really ugly bits of my heart, like Jonah did. I've learned about my inadequacy. I can't reach Dublin, but God can. I've learned about life and righteousness from my colleagues who have revealed and taught me patience, tact, emotional intelligence, and so many other things in the workplace. And I've often discovered that my colleagues' actions and attitudes were more righteous than I. And I've been humbled about that and had to repent. Being a sent people does not mean we're proud because we're not sorted. Secondly, to be a sent people means, as this passage is all about, we have to see where we're running from God. Every one of us is in some way. We're all Jonah in some way. And we find out where we're running from God because God says, go and love this person. Get close to this person. And you go, <gasps> and God says, huh, you see where you're running from me? Now I want to get into your hearts and I want to help you and I want to teach you grace. God doesn't expose our ugly hearts because he's judging us. He does it because he wants to convict us and change us so then he can use us and teach us grace. Do you remember Peter made a big mess of things when he denied Jesus, made a big mess of things in the church of Galatia when he separated from Gentiles? And God taught him grace through his mess up so he could teach others grace. And by the way, correct doctrine and a past spiritual experience of God does not mean that your heart doesn't need changing and you need to repent right now. It, you know, if you attend church every week, if you come from a Christian home, if you call yourself a Christian, if you do all the right things Christians should do, you believe all the right stuff, does not mean you don't need to accept Jesus afresh or for the first time today. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day we turn to him. I believe the right things and I met with God when I was 12. No, today. What's he doing? How are you taking up your cross and following him? That's why we need to allow God to expose us, to humble us, to teach us grace, to reveal our hearts so he can then change us and use us. Thirdly, we must reach the Jonas and the pagan sailors of the city. We must reach the elder brothers and the younger brothers. We must reach the religious and the irreligious, the moral and the immoral, the conservative and the liberal, the legalists and the libertines, the Pharisees and the sinners. We need to reach them all. And uh, if you are here today and you're considering becoming a Christian, you need to know that we are not calling you to be religious. Christianity is something vastly different from religion and irreligion. It's something completely different. It's about understanding the compassion of God despite our sin and coming into a personal relationship with him. We need to reach all these people. Some of you will be naturally drawn to the Gentiles, the, you know, the sinners in this story. And you'll find it hard to love the, the religious churchgoers who maybe you find a bit proud. And God says, no, I want you to reach them too. Some of you might be a bit scared by Nineveh, you know, by the, the pagan Gentiles, as it were, in this story. And God says, Nick, overcome that fear. Come on, let's go. I want you to go into the places that you wouldn't want to go. We have to reach both types of people. A final, final but obvious application. You've got to say it, haven't you? We just, if, you if you know you're running from God, if your conscience has been pricked all the time or even just now, and there's something in your heart or there's someone in your heart that you know you can't love, God says, stop running from me. Stop it. Stop running to Tarshish. It's a stupid place to go. Come back. Turn around. Repent. If you go, I can't. I could never love that person. I could never do this, God. God says, that's fine. I'll teach you how to do it, but just come to me. Don't be a fool. 
You can't escape him. Where are you going to run to? That you, you know it. That's why your conscience is pricking you. Give up. And here's the thing. Give up before God has to do something drastic, like throw you overboard. And then he'll really humble you. Humble yourself. Do it before he has to do it. Because it would be far less painful if he has to humble you through some adversity, some challenge, some trial. It's much more painful. Humble yourself before God or else he may humble you. You will not find rest and peace until you do. Do it sooner rather than later. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of rest. But there's one more application. There's one more application. 650 years later, another servant would come. He wouldn't go from Jerusalem to Nineveh. He'd go from heaven to earth. And God would say to this servant, I want you to love the enemy to the point where they actually put you on a cross. And in that moment, you're going to, well, he didn't, he's natural. His heart said, Father, forgive them. His heart was full of purity and love towards the worst enemy. Do you remember when he was asleep, a deep sleep on a boat in Lake Galilee? And the disciples run to him like the pagan sailors run to Jonah and they say, you know, how can you sleep? And they're terrified and Jesus stands up and says, be still and the wind and the waves bow down to him. He's in control over nature. The suffering servant who controls nature. And he's the true Jonah. Why? Because he's got ultimate compassion. He gives up that control. He gives up his rights. You know, one thing Jesus gave up was his omnipresence. Psalm 139. He couldn't be, he's one, he became a human. He gave up an attribute of being God. He couldn't be everywhere at once. He gave up his control, he gave up his rights, he gave up his comfort, and he loved his worst enemies to death. Why? So he could forgive us of our proud and ugly hearts. He could forgive the pagan sailors, the sinners, those that mess up in obvious external sins, and he forgives those proud Pharisees like Jonah with more internal sins of pride and envy and anger. And so we too need to experience him. And we need to know, well, if he did that for me and for us, do you feel like a dirty, Gentile, pagan, younger brother or a proud, stubborn, religious, racist, elder brother? He says, well, he died for you and he, and he loves you and he's got compassion on you and he's pursuing you and he's never going to stop pursuing you. So let him in. Let him soften your heart. May God help us as he sends us to this city. Should we stand and pray? And then we'll have a song to finish. Take a moment to think where you are running from God or you know there's someone in your life or a type of person that you find very hard to love. And God says, I want you to get close because I want to teach you about my compassion in your heart. Take a moment. If you're comfortable, just close your eyes. Then we're, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the light that Israel never was, or rarely was. You're the king and the priest that came to represent God to all of us. We thank you that you're not a Pharisee about Pharisees. You love them. You go after them. You're constantly calling them to repent. And we thank you for the amazing compassion that you showed to those who knew they were sinners. They knew they'd messed up. But you love them. You exalted them. You associated with them. And we thank you, Jesus, that today you come to us, whether we're more like Jonah or more like the pagan sailors, you're coming to us.
to change us and to give us your grace, your saving grace. Lord, we say sorry where so often we assume that our, you know, we're Christians, we're in the church, we believe the right stuff, we've experienced you before, that that somehow gives us some kind of credit or rights or a reason to feel safe and secure and proud in that. Teach us where our hearts are proud and teach us when they're ugly that we might be changed. Help us to have a humility before the people in the city of Dublin. There's so much they can teach us. And Lord, I do pray that you would send us. Send us to the city to love all people. And so now, Lord, as we respond, show us those areas where we need to turn around and come to you again in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.